0: We are uh, reading and studying the first five verses of Acts chapter 16, so I'd encourage you to turn there in your Bibles, Acts chapter 16, the first five verses. And in these verses, uh, we're going to learn a few things about Timothy. And as we do, uh, Lord willing, uh, each person here will gain spiritual insight Whether you be old or young, a parent or grandparent or single, uh, what we learn here impresses upon us the vital kingdom work that we have. And the vital kingdom work we have in rearing the children of the church in the gospel. And we'll also see here the purity of the gospel itself. Uh, I'll read uh, these uh, five verses of Acts chapter 16. Hear the word of God. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he, this is referring to Timothy, was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith. And we're increasing in number daily. As this passage opens up, lo and behold, uh, Paul is back in Lystra. Uh, And if you go back to Acts chapter 14, just a few years before, two or three years before uh, Paul was in Lystra at that time with Barnabas. And while Paul uh, was there, he healed Barnabas. Where the Lord healed through Paul, a man who had been born lame. And the people in that area were so astonished that led by the priest of Zeus, the people wanted to offer sacrifices to Paul and to Barnabas. And they were crying out, the gods have come down among us in human form. And Paul was so distressed by what they were saying, he tore his robes and he said, no, we are human nature just like you. But we have come to tell you that you should turn from these vain things to the living God. But right after that, some Jews came down from Antioch and Iconium and won over the crowds. And We read the scripture that they stoned Paul. They dragged him outside of the city, supposing him to be dead. That probably happened around 47 A.D. Well, in our passage today, around 50 A.D., Paul is back. He's back in Lystra and he's checking up on the church, wanting to encourage them. Now, this time Barnabas is not with them. Silas is with him. And there in Lystra, uh, Paul meets a young Christian man about whom people speak very well, whose name is Timothy. Now, let's go over some things we know about Timothy. Uh, First of all, we know he's a Christian. He's referred to in verse one as a disciple. Secondly, it seems pretty clear that only one of his parents was a Christian. Uh, His mother was Jewish and she was a believer. It says here, it says, but his father was a Greek probably indicating that his father was not a believer. But Timothy's grandmother was also a Christian. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 5, Paul writes to Timothy, I have been reminded of your sincere faith which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice and I am persuaded now lives in you also. And when you hear that you might think well probably Timothy's grandmother raised his mother as a Christian, his mother raised him as a Christian. No, I mean the gospel had just been brought to this area about three years before, and so the the grandmother and the mother were converted, and then Tim, Timothy also came to (laughs) Tim. (laughs) He and I are pretty close, you know. Uh he calls me Willie, but (laughs) but uh uh but he came to faith sometime after that as well. Uh we know he must be very young here. Uh, perhaps he's a teenager because some 15 years later in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul addresses Timothy as a young man. So again, th- about 15 years after our passage, after they've been in our passage today in Acts chapter 16, Paul still addresses Timothy as a young man. And we also know that, as I said, Timothy was highly regarded by other Christians, well spoken of. Now, I want to take a few minutes to speak to various groups of people uh, here among us. First, I'd like to speak uh, to the young and I'd be thinking, you know, more or less from age 10 to 22, you know, to children, youth and those who are college age. And I want to exhort you to live for God now. Don't wait until you're older. Don't think oh, this is just something one does when one is older. Timothy is young at this point, perhaps a teenager. And what does verse 2 say? It says, the brethren at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. I don't know about the, the current teenage culture in LaGrange, but in the teenage culture where I grew up, uh at least it seemed to me there was the the expectation that each young person necessarily would and even should go through a period of rebellion and of wildness and it, and it, i think there was the thought that if one didn't go through such a period that there was something sort of weird about that person and and i was surprised uh when i Met my now wife, Sydney, and, and got to know her to find out that when she was young, she didn't sneak around behind her parents back. Uh, uh, she didn't get drunk with her friends when she was in high school or college. And it seemed to me at the time she was like the first person that I'd met that had gone through and had friends at those ages at that age uh, who also lived a life open and honest and transparent and and, and morally good before parents. Even as a young person, looking back, I think there were some in my high school like that, but, uh, but it seemed rather few. Evidently, when word leaked back to Timothy's parents regarding his character, it would have brought them joy. Proverbs 10, 1 says this, A wise son brings joy to his father, but a foolish son grief to his mother. Proverbs 22, one says, a good name is more desirable than great riches to be esteemed is better than silver or gold. Uh, if, if there's any of you already, even at a young age, mixed up in a lot of bad things, I, I want to exhort you to give serious thought and to to turn uh, Why? Put your parents through such grief. And why put yourself through an upcoming grief. So that when God convicts you of your sin. You have deep regret over what's been in your wake. Even at a young age. I want you to notice here too. That Timothy. Even as this young person. Is called to a holy life. Paul is calling him. God is calling him to take part in this missionary journey. And think about this, dear friends. What's the initial impression that Timothy and his grandmother and mother have of the Christian life? Their initial impression comes from the first time the gospel was brought to their city. And Paul was stoned and dragged out of the city and left for dead. That's their impression of what following Christ can mean. And here Timothy, at this young age, is willing to put his life in danger, even suffer physical hardship, including the hardship of circumcision here, but also Possible dangers that may come his way as a young person, not only as before adulthood, as a young person, he's committed to suffering for the gospel. And so, again, I encourage you young people, don't think I'll wait till I get older. Live for Christ now. Christ is calling you to a holy life now. And let me be absolutely clear about something. I'm not encouraging you simply to be nice, kind children around adults. Although those are positive attributes, I'm encouraging you to love God and to hate sin and to be obedient to Christ. To live for Jesus. Now I'd like to uh, speak to parents and I'd like to exhort you to raise your child or your children in the Lord and for the Lord. Now, we all as a community, a church community, as a covenant community, have a responsibility towards the children in the church. Uh, I'm not sure about the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, but in the Presbyterian Church in America, the denomination I'm a part of, we, we have a question when a child is baptized. And the question is this. Do you as a congregation undertake the responsibility of assisting the parents in the Christian nurture of this child? Do you all have that same question during baptism here? Not sure. Anyway, uh, biblically, apart even from uh, a question in a book of church order, biblically, there is the responsibility the Christian community has uh, for modeling Christ before children, uh, for uh, encouraging them in Christ. But parents, please realize you have the foremost responsibility for training your children. The foremost responsibility does not lie with the Sunday school teacher. It does not lie with the youth worker. It does not even lie with the pastor. It it lies with you. And in Deuteronomy chapter 11, we have these words, verses 18 and following. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. And and of course, these days it could be too when you're texting with your children, when you're talking with them on the phone, when they're calling uh, home from college, when you're riding along in the car. If you are lazy about raising your children in the Lord, being careless with that has, that has been entrusted to you. There are grave consequences, dear friends. How do you raise your children in the Lord? First of all, you must be devoted to God and to his word. When I was growing up, my father got up before I did. But on the occasion that I'd get up early enough uh, to, to find him. Uh, still at home, uh, in, early in the morning, he would be sitting in his chair uh, reading the Bible. He would sit in his chair and read the Bible for a little while before he get ready for work and go off. And even as I went through a number of years of doubt, the the image of him reading the Bible and the quality of my parents' marriage was juxtaposed with what I was seeing in the world and thinking about, or in, truly engaging in the world, and And the comparison between the two made me realize that that what my father had and what my parents had was real. Something does not come from nothing. And they had something. And it was a relationship with God. It was a holiness. It was a joy. It was an integrity. It was a trust. And so parents, you need to raise your children to the Lord by first fixing the words of God in your minds and hearts. One child said to his father, Daddy. Daddy. Mama's Bible must be more interesting than yours. <laughs> May it not be that way. Secondly, parents, you must continually communicate God's truth with them, sharing with your children what has got what God has been teaching you through Scripture and prayer and experience. I remember uh, one of my daughters communicating with me while she was in college, and uh, she would uh, she was uh, in English literature. Major, and they were reading Flannery O'Connor, very depressing stuff, you know. And she and I were communicating about that, and I was an English literature major too. But I, I remember telling her, saying, "And we have, we have to be careful with this. Christians ought to have the clearest eye to see the brokenness of the world and the sorrow of the world. But we need to be careful that our experience." Of the brokenness and sorrow of the world is not just lived out in the imaginary and books or on the stage, but that we engage in the brokenness of the world and take part in bringing God's redemptive hand and hope to the world. And so that was an opportunity to speak with her uh, about what God would have us do and how we meet the needs of a broken world, dear parents. Read the Bible with your children, discuss the Bible with them, even when they're very, very young. Pray with and for your children. Think about the parable of the talents. To some he gave five, to some he gave three, to some he gave two, to some he gave one. To some of you he's given five children, to some three, to some two, to some one. And the Lord calls us to be a good steward of all that he has given us, to use it for his glory. Including our children, we need to and, in addition to raising them in the Lord, we need to raise them for the Lord. Again, what happened the first time Paul visited Lystra? He was stoned, drugged out of the city, and left for dead. And think about this: Timothy's mother, Timothy's grandmother, and even Timothy's father. In sending him off with Paul to do ministry. Have an awareness of what this may cost. Because they've seen it in their own town. But Timothy's parents give their son they love over to the work of God's kingdom. Even though they have seen firsthand its hardships and dangers. Perhaps Timothy or perhaps his grandmother and mother were among those whom the scriptures say were gathered around Paul after he was left for dead. Parents, are you willing? Are you even desirous that the Lord would do with your children what is according to His good and pleasing and perfect will? His will may bring A fair share of suffering into their lives. His will may include that they face dangers and toils and snares. His will may include that they are distant, geographically distant from you. His will may include that they give up material blessings. But children are a gift from the Lord. We raise them for him. And we must be willing to give them up to Him. We cannot be stingy with them. And what compels us in this is that God gave up His Son. The Father gave up His Son to carry out the will of God, though it included great suffering, and yet it brought eternal glory. Okay, now I'd like to speak particularly to those who are in marriages where only one of the spouses is a Christian. And I'd like to speak the same time to those who are single Christian parents. Have, have you thought about the fact that Timothy comes from a family where only one parent was a Christian? Have you thought about that? And I would guess that Timothy's mother felt at times a heaviness in her heart, perhaps a sadness in her heart, certainly a great longing in her heart that her husband would know the Lord and know the joy that she had. We don't know what became of her husband, but we know what became of Timothy. About ten years after Timothy, This event in Acts chapter 16, Paul writes to the Philippians in chapter 2, these verses regarding Timothy, verses 19 and following. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your well in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I know how things go with me. You know, Paul had a number of co-laborers. If you think of Paul as traveling by himself. In these missionary journeys, you got the wrong picture. Much of the time, he had a number of co-laborers with him who were willing to endure chastisement, physical persecution, who were willing to forsake riches, who were willing to be among the first to carry to the dark world news of the risen Lord. And yet, Paul says regarding Timothy, I have no one else like him. And Timothy came from a home where only one parent was a Christian. Did any co-laborer cheer Paul more than Timothy? Probably not. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and following, Paul writes, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you, Timothy, in my prayers night and day, longing to see you even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of your sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother and your mother. And one more thing about to those of you who may be in a marriage where one spouse is not a Christian. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 and following says this. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Now think about that. If you are in a marriage and your spouse is not a believer, think about what just Paul says right there. He does not say, your children are spiritual half breeds He says, your children are holy. And you bring hope for your spouse. Okay, now, let me speak to those of you who are older. Maybe your children are grown. Maybe you have grandchildren. Some of you may feel like uh, uh, you maybe to some degree blew it, that you weren't uh, the spiritual parents you should be, that you didn't lead your children in the Lord, uh, but that's kind of what you feel like, well, that's water under the bridge, but you have grandchildren now. What about you? 2 Timothy 1.5 Timothy, I am mindful of the sincere faith within you which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois. My great-grandfather was named C.C. Hurd. His initials were C.C. He was named C.C. Hurd. And he was a Baptist preacher in Georgia. And some years ago, through a distant relative, I received an old leather bag with his handwritten sermons and his Bible. And uh, I I would like... to have brought the Bible to show you today, but we just moved in my books or in boxes, and I, I wouldn't begin to know which box it's in. Uh, but uh, but when you open up the, the, the Bible, and I mean, it is in tatters. It looks like it was a Baptist preacher's Bible, right? You open it up, and on the first page, uh, is written, "CC Heard, a child of the king. And then it says, Holy Bible, Book Divine, Precious Savior, Thou art mine. And then you flip the page over and he's written, uh, My brethren have have given me a new Bible. Apparently because this Bible is such tatters that, that some Christian brothers gave him a new Bible. And he said, but oh, how I hate to give you up! May I never love the word less? This is my great grandfather. presumably he was born in the 1800s. Never met him, and yet when I when I pick up that Bible and I read that, it it is. Real spiritual encouragement to me, and I think even as you hear the story, it it warms your spirit, does it not? And so if you're up in age and you feel like maybe even blew it for the, the first few decades of your life, the faith first lived in grandmother Lois. Okay. now. A message to those of you who are single and have no children. Uh, Paul was single. You can be a Paul to a Timothy. Or as Titus 2 says, the older women can train the younger women. You may not be married. You may not have children. And, uh, but scripture has Some very clear things to say about your place and work and fruit in the body. You know, someone may think, oh, the poor little singles. I just hate that they don't have somebody. We had a wonderful man in our church in in Mississippi. And he had been a bachelor all his life. And we all thought so much of him. Sydney just wanted to find a wife for him. Not so much because she was... You know, concerned for ruble, although she was, but she saw ruble such a great guy. I just hate that some woman's missing out on not having ruble. Right. So it's easy to think of, oh, you know, poor little singles. And there might be singles to think poor little me. Well, I want you to hear what the scripture says about singlehood in the kingdom. In First Corinthians, chapter seven, verse thirty two and following, Paul writes, I would like for you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how we can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. The scriptures make clear that the Christian singles in our church should be among the the point persons to lead the way in advance of the gospel. They should be among the marines to take the beach for the kingdom. My uh, my wife has a sister Stacy. When we first got married, I was a little jealous of Stacy because Sydney and Stacy are so close. Stacy would play with Sydney's hair, and Sydney just loved how it felt. And so when we first got married, I wanted to do it. So I'd play with Sydney's hair. And it doesn't seem like it would be that hard to play with hair, but I just couldn't do it like Stacy. There's no way I could do it like Stacy, right? Now I'm grateful for their close relationship. Stacy's never married. She's older than Sydney. Uh, but she regularly gets updates about our children and keeps on top of uh, what's going on with her other nieces and nephews, and she prays for them. When they were young, she would take them places and buy them presents. She's had a real spiritual influence. One of our daughters, when when she thinks of like, you know, naming spiritual people, you know, she doesn't say Billy Graham; she mentions Stacy, right? And so, singles have a very important role to play in the church. I mean, hey, Christ was single. And people brought children to him and the disciples rebuked the parents saying, you know, no, no. You know, Jesus, I guess, has more important things to do. And Jesus reproved the disciples. And he held the children and he put his hands on them and he prayed for them. Okay, now we're going to shift our focus uh, to something else within this passage. And uh, it would be Highlighted. It would be all the more apparent if we had read Acts chapter 15 prior to getting into 16. Why do I say that? Because in Acts chapter 15, you have the first Christian council, the first meeting of the leaders. It's the apostles and the elders meeting in Jerusalem. And that meeting was, overall, of overall things, circumcision. Because the question had been raised, what is required to be saved? What is required to be in the right with God? And in that meeting, it was decided that God did not require circumcision for people to be saved. That was that was a huge meeting, right? Acts chapter 15. The decision is rendered by the apostles and the elders that one does not have to be circumcised to be saved. And then you get in the opening verses of chapter 16. What does Paul do? He takes Timothy, whose father is a Greek, and has him circumcised. And you're like, what? What's going on? Paul, did you did you change your mind so that you now think circumcision or Parts of the ceremonial law are necessary after all, or Paul, do you fear the Jews? Do you fear what they might say? Do you fear their persecution? So you circumcised Timothy because you were afraid? And the answer to those questions is no. The issue for chapter 15 is a different issue from the chapter, from the issue in chapter 16. The issue of chapter 15 is what Must one do to be saved? And what's interesting is when it came down to maintaining the purity of the gospel, Paul refused to have Titus circumcised. But in Acts chapter 16, it's a different question. And he has Timothy circumcised. In Acts chapter 15, there were Jewish Christians saying that more than faith was required to be forgiven by God. For a person to become a Christian, he must keep the law of Moses. And uh, in one of the highest tests of compliance is circumcision. And this this type of teaching so distressed Paul that he in the book of Galatians wrote that he feared he had run his race in vain. Because this meeting at the Council of Jerusalem concluded that God made clear that after all, Jews or Gentiles, you or I are saved through grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and through grace alone. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, the Scriptures make clear that Jesus rescues you from the coming wrath and there is no condemnation by one sacrifice He is made perfect forever you who are being made holy. Their sins and their lawless acts I'll remember no more, the law says the scripture says, and it says that God will rejoice over you with singing. And so any church or any cult that says it is by the works of our flesh we are saved, or by a combination of grace and the works of our flesh, we must, with conviction. Say no, it is through grace. So, again, the issue of chapter 15 is what must I do to be saved? And the answer is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. His merits are sufficient for you. Now, after being so careful to preserve the gospel, we get to the issue of chapter 16. Why did Paul circumcise Timothy in chapter 16? The issue is not what is the gospel. The issue here is what can I best, what can I do to best reach the world with the gospel? And in this particular case, what, what can I do? What hindrances can I remove? Legitimate hindrances to remove to best reach these Jews with the gospel. Uh, a pastor under whom I interned years ago, I just love the man dearly, North Carolina, D.D. Wayland. Uh, had a sister who was a missionary in Korea. And I presume it was through them, I'm not sure, I presume it was through them that I heard the story that there was a pastor who was, a, a, a Western pastor, who was getting up to preach as a guest speaker in a, in a Korean church. And uh, just before he spoke, he took out a handkerchief and he blew his nose. And he lost the ears of the people. Why? Because it's considered vulgar to blow your nose in public in Korea. I was reading, too, where uh, when you, w- the, you know, of course, there's honor towards older people. You should not touch on the shoulder or the head an older Korean. In, in a formal meeting, uh, you should not show the bottom of your shoes in front of people that you should honor. So men should not cross their legs so that the bottom of the shoe is visible when they're meeting with people that they honor. I even read this. I thought it was interesting. You, you never put utensils in the rice. Uh, that that's something that's just done when honoring the dead. And and you should not eat before an older person. If you know, if you think like things are getting along, you're like, man, let's eat. What you do is you say the older person. Please begin eating <laughs> you don't start right okay and so so Paul writes in Galatians, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything what counts as faith is what counts as faith expressing itself through love and Paul has this new co-laborer named Timothy. Paul wants to continue effective ministry. Paul wants to do what will prove most highly effective so why? Why blow your nose? Why burp? Why sneeze? Why show the bottom of your feet if it's not necessary in getting the gospel out? Now is Paul going to sweep the freedom of the gospel under the rug? No. In verse 4 we read, as they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. Paul's going to make, Timothy's going to make doctrine clear. They will deliver the decrees of the council. But why hinder an effective work? The Jews knew that Timothy was from a Greek mom. And I do believe that Paul, in his heart, did what he thought would be expedient for getting out the gospel. But I, I want to make sure when you use the word, when I use the word expedient, that it doesn't sound clinical. It was it was born out of love and concern for his fellow Jews. Paul in 1 Corinthians nine nineteen and following says this. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. You know, we live in an age that perhaps is unprecedented. I don't know if it's okay, but perhaps it's unprecedented to the degree to which people speak out for and demand rights. Now, there are a number of rights that are very important and are to be upheld. What I'm talking about here is we are in a time where it's taken to the point of idolatry. I have the right to say whatever I want. I have the right to do whatever I want. I have the right to be whatever. I have the right to declare whether I am a man or a woman. Okay, Rights are taken to the point of idolatry. And what does Paul say? Right, shmite, I make myself a slave. Paul, a Roman citizen, Paul, highly educated, Paul, among the brightest out there, says, I make myself a slave to everyone to win them for the gospel. And what Paul says in Romans chapter 9 kind of defies me. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. You know, if, if, if somehow in God's providence, it came up that I could give up my own salvation for the assured salvation of my children and grandchildren, I think I would do it, though the fear of hellish torment would would be tremendous. But asking me to give that up for people who would stone me to give that up for people who, that I bear scars on my body because of the way of preaching, and and Paul is saying, I'd give it up. And if you think maybe maybe he's just using hyperbole, he says, no, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I could wish that I were accursed for their sake. That's how much he wanted his Jewish brethren to come to the knowledge of Christ. I'm almost afraid to pray for that level of love. should. Where did Paul get the inspiration? He got it from Jesus, right? You know, Paul uses the subjunctive. Remember that? Studying the subjunctive, he says, I wish that I myself were cursed. He's expressing something that is not the reality. With Christ, there's no subjunctive. Christ was cursed for the good of and the saving of his brethren. And he just did lower himself from being a Roman citizen, of being a very bright person, of being a Pharisee. He considered equality with God something not to be grasped and made himself nothing and took on the form of a servant And went to a cross. That's where Paul gets the inspiration to love his Jewish brethren so much. Because he is aware of how deeply he has been loved. And he's aware of the great sacrifice that Christ himself has made for him to be saved. Nothing compels us more than realizing how much we have been forgiven. How much we have been loved. And at what great cost. So, dear Christians, you must preserve the gospel. It must remain pure. A mixed gospel is no gospel. And at the same time, let us cast aside every hindrance, not only to sin, but every hindrance to the carrying forth of the gospel to a world in such need of it. Pray that God would fan our love for Him and for one another and to flame at your job, seek out others with whom you work, seek out to serve them and, and do your work well so that if God gives the opportunity to share softly with your lips what Christ has done with you, that your lips will be amplified by the testimony of your good work. At this church, make it a point to meet and to know and to serve or minister some way, in some way people you have not yet come to know. Pray for one another. Bear one another's burdens. Exercise hospitality towards one another. And in your neighborhood, think about those who may not know the Lord. Think about those who may be disliked. Who might be lonely. Invite them over for a meal. Take them out for a boat ride. Invite them to a sports event which you're attending. I don't know if any of you have heard of Mo Leverett. Uh, in the 1990s, uh, he moved, he, he and his wife and children moved into what's called Desire Project. It was an area just beyond the French Quarter in New Orleans. Had a high murder rate. According to the federal government, it was listed as one of the worst places to live. Had over 90% unemployment Almost half of the buildings were abandoned. And uh, he got a job there working as an assistant football coach in order to begin witnessing and ultimately plan a church there. He was known as Coach Moe. And he met two people on the way, Levy and Nina. They were single at the time. Uh, Levy had stolen many cars by the time he was even driving age. And anyway, uh, the Lord brought... Levy and Nina to themselves through Moe's witness and they got married. And Moe shared that, uh, that that Nina got pregnant and that Levy was proud and was telling everybody that, that they were going to have a child and that one night he called Moe on the phone and in the conversation Levy said Coach Moe the cycle is breaking. And Moe said what are you talking about? And Levy said this child's going to be born into a family With a mother and a father. And ladies and gentlemen, God, through his love and power, breaks cycles. He breaks cycles in housing projects. He breaks cycles in country clubs, in small towns, in large cities, in lake communities. He breaks cycles of unbelief. He breaks cycles of husbands and wives mistreating one another, of leaving one another. He breaks the cycles of children losing a parent through divorce. He breaks the cycle of children disobeying the parents. He breaks the cycle of embezzlement at work, of lust and of greed and hypocrisy. He breaks the cycle of despair and gives sure hope. and this message must be protected and this message must be sent forth his mercies are new every morning you know it's interesting the people that stone didn't it? well the people that ultimately well, first wanted to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas said the gods have come in, have come down in human form among us they got it wrong Paul and Barnabas were human beings like you and I are But they they touched on a theme, right? God has come down in human form and lived among us. And by this we are saved. And now we come to the Lord's Supper. And the bread represents the body of the Divine One who took on human form. And the wine represents body the blood of the Divine One who took on human form. And there was no subjunctive. He was cursed. He bore our sins in His body. But thanks be to God, He was raised from the dead. He was exalted. And as Isaiah says, He divides the spoil with the strong one day we're going to be at that banquet table with them, the scripture says, where there's the finest of wines and the best of meats. And what we're about to participate in looks back to the cross, but it also looks forward to the feast. So examine your hearts. Turn from sin. Believe on Christ by faith. Uh, With the elders who are uh, helping with the distribution of the elements, please come forward.